This is all about first mover advantage. And the thing with SAS, you become very sticky very, very quickly. And so the opportunity is definitely over the next 10 years, maybe 15 years for Aotearoa New Zealand, in terms of SaaS businesses identifying their niche and becoming very, very sticky because then it's hard to be disrupted. The New Zealand Tech Podcast, brought to you by Gorilla Technology, proactive and strategic IT. Greetings and welcome along to the New Zealand Tech Podcast. I'm your host, Paul Spain. Today, we have a special episode for you where we bring some highlights from the event Southern SAS that was held in Auckland on 30th of March, 2023. Uh, SAS stands for Software as a Service, and it's what companies like Xero are renowned for, and it has the beauty of being an incredible opportunity for New Zealand for us to grow our SAS business, weightless export lots and lots we can delve into there and we'll do that with our three guests today Bruce Jarvis head of Kiwi SAS Bernard Hickey commentator and podcaster and Graham Grant the chief executive of Sequent who around two years ago uh, were acquired for about 1.4 billion dollars now they've got an incredible story that will I'm sure be of great interest to many of our listeners Uh, so let's dive in hope you really enjoy this show uh, a big thank you to our show partners, to Two Degrees, Spark, HP1NZ, and Gorilla Technology. So without further ado, let's jump in. Well, it's exciting this morning to be at Southern SAS, and we're with Bruce Jarvis. He heads up uh, Kiwi SAS, who of course are behind uh, Southern SAS 2023. Welcome along. Kia ora, Paul. Thanks for the opportunity. Bruce, a little bit of introduction on you know why you've why you've taken on this opportunity with with Kiwi SAS and and you know the scale of the opportunity that uh, that New Zealand has ahead of us. Starting from the beginning, one of the reasons I, I took on this opportunity is, like many a sector, I believe it's a great opportunity for New Zealand. And as Bernard talked about, you know, um, in his presentation, it's an inflection point. And if you look at SAS, SAS is very unique. Firstly, it's a relatively young industry. It's been around most probably 10 years. The digital transformation going worldwide is just growing faster and faster and faster, and there's no stopping that. And so I think at the moment in terms of you know, worldwide market size, we're about 1.5% in terms of the global market. So you know, in terms of scale opportunity, it's huge. It's, the numbers you kind of just can't get your head around. Secondly, and they're going to keep growing, aren't they? This is, this is the reality. They're going to keep growing. The other end to that, just coming back onto that point, biggest part of that is actually over the next 10 years. And I always use the example around TradeMe. When TradeMe came along, they captured market and established themselves firmly in that market. Since then, a bunch of people have come along and tried to disrupt them. They haven't been able to be disrupted. This is all about first mover advantage. And the thing with SAS, you become very sticky very, very quickly. And so the opportunity is definitely over the next 10 years, maybe 15 years, for Aotearoa New Zealand, in terms of SaaS businesses identifying their niche and becoming very, very sticky, because then it's hard to be disrupted. And that's why I use Trade Me as an example, because you know, how many times are people trying to disrupt it? And it's still around. You know, it's almost become a New Zealand's institution. So that's that's first one. Secondly, it's scalability. I mean, the term global from day one is kind of thrown around a lot, and people kind of go, yeah, what does that mean? And I mean, a great example I, I talk about is if you look at Pushpay. Now, Pushpay, essentially, their core market right now is the churches in the southern states of America. How many churches are there in the world? 
how many charities are in the world in terms of wanting to engage with their donors. You know, so in terms of their market, it's huge. Look at you know, zero. How many SMEs in the world? So when people talk about global from day one, what that means is the market out there is is huge, and it's just shipped over a little bit of fibre. That you know, that that luckily in New Zealand, um, we've got a great fibre network throughout the country. So the other next point to that is, you can be living in Kaikoura, supporting the local economy with a high salary, high wage, and working for a great global company that's based out of New Zealand. No other sector can do that. You know, if you're in manufacturing, you've got to be near the manufacturing plant. If you're in farming, it's wherever your farm is. So it's very, very unique around that. The next element to it is you don't have to go to university, go through a three-year degree and get, for many people, quite a significant level of debt. And that level of debt is a barrier to a lot of people, and also the fact of going to university is a barrier to a lot of people. You know, we had a panel discussion with um, Mission Ready, Take Two, and Marion from uh, Ministry of Awesome. And that was all around what are the pathways? What actually are the pathways? This sector, what, what's unique about it is accessible for all New Zealanders. And so what really gets me and the team, and I think everyone in the, at the conference really, really excited, is this is a way of levelling up New Zealand and an opportunity for everyone in Aotearoa New Zealand. And that's really exciting. So looking at where we are you know, as a country at the moment in terms of the value of our software as a service exports, you know, we've, we've been told by the Technology Investment Network that you know, we have, have that potential in the not-too-distant future for you know, tech to be our number one export earner. Where does software as a service fit into that uh, picture, you know, where are we at now, and and what is that potential tra- trajectory? Do you do you agree with uh, with Tin on that, in those regards? Oh, look, uh, in terms of absolutely tech, it's heading that way. Um, I certainly believe, and if you look at the, the, the data points, um, SAS is going to pay a big part of that, if not the largest part of that. Uh, we, we're currently tracking 576 SAS companies, a very interesting data point from that is 94% of those companies are earning less than $10 million in annual reoccurring revenue. So that means there's this massive pipeline of early growth as well. I'd describe them, companies coming down, they're going to fuel that growth trajectory. On top of that, since we stood up South KiwiSAS last year, there's an additional 200 companies that have come out of the woodwork, so to speak, and joined. And so that's about a 37% increase. So we're just over 800, and there's more out there. And so if you look at those data points, that growth trajectory, in terms of we believe we've got a real opportunity to be New Zealand One's export earner, is very real. Because, again, you look at the number of companies coming through, the number of companies at the other end, um, it's just going to fuel that growth. So how do we do that? seems like you know, events like Southern, Southern SAS are part of the process of sort of you know building this flywheel keeping you know keeping things moving there's there's three legs to the to, to KiwiSAS so one is the KiwiSAS community and KiwiSAS central and that's a digital room where everyone comes in terms of they can ask questions they can post forums they can you know it's curated content and so they can come in and help the community solve their problems or ask questions one of the, the the dangers about companies is that often you get into your own eco chamber 
And so being able to reach out to anyone who lives anywhere across Aotearoa, New Zealand, or even overseas who actually wants to help. The second leg to that is the National Data Centre Benchmarking, so um, which is going to be launched uh, this year. And so be able to track key metrics and data points that people can see where they're tracking. And the third is the KiwiCS Academy, which is focused around accelerating the growth of, of key business skills. The reason that's important, if you look at, the, again, that pipeline of companies, there's actually a relatively small number of people in this New Zealand who've got the, the, the knowledge and experience, quote-unquote, war scars, of creating and building a company and what you know, that journey. And so how do we take that limited pool and accelerate that, that transfer of knowledge across those other 94% companies. So that's the key purpose behind KiwiSAS. Great. And where are you at now? Because KiwiSAS is only, what, a few months old, right? When, yeah, so we've still at KiwiSAS Central. So any SAS individuals out there, go to kiwisas.com and sign up and, and join. And out of that, you'll get access to our chapters, our workshops, our webinars, um, the forums. Um, so we're very early part of the, the, the journey. You know, we're very fortunate to be um, funded by uh, the New Zealand government and the Digital Industry Transformation Programme uh, for, for three years as we stand this up. And so, yeah, we're, we're very much at the early part of that journey. The key message I'd get out to your, your listeners is everyone's got something to share and everyone's got something to learn. And the success of this is dependent on everyone actually leaning in and being part of it. What a fantastic opportunity. Well, thank you very much, and we'll look forward to uh, hearing, a, hearing a lot more. But, uh, yeah, I'd certainly encourage people to, uh, to jump on board and, and to get across to the website. Thanks for the opportunity. Great. Thank you. We're here at uh, Southern SAS 2023, now speaking with Bernard Hickey. Um, Bernard, maybe you can give us a, a short intro of where you, where you fit into this, uh, this big, wild world of media and, and technology and software in New Zealand. Yeah, well, I started off as a financial journalist, but in the last 15 years, I've been what I call a journopreneur, which means I've been building journalism businesses online. So couldn't really call it a software as a service. You could argue it's an information software as a service. Uh, and over the last 15 years, I've built uh, two organizations, um, interest.co.nz. I was a co-founder of interest.co.nz and also newsroom.co.nz. But now I'm independent and produce a daily email newsletter and podcast through Substack. It's called The Kaka, and that's how I make a living. I essentially am a, an independent political, economic, business commentator who is interested in uh, making Aotearoa a nicer, richer and cleaner place to be. That's great. Well, that, uh, that, that sounds you know, like where we, we want to go. Now, um, can you maybe break down a, a little bit of what you shared uh, here at Southern SAS uh, this morning for, for listeners who, who maybe weren't there or they're listening in to, to, get, a, you know, to get the message a second time because it, uh, you know, it was pretty good. Um, so, yeah, what were, the, what were kind of the, the, the highlights? Yeah, this was a great opportunity for me to um, come up with some ideas that are about building and growing and improving things. 
a lot of my work is about pointing out where things are going wrong. But this was an opportunity to say, hey, uh, we could grow in a different way. And the people who are here in front of me, New Zealand's SaaS industry, are at the heart of what could be an engine room for creating a new New Zealand. One that is cleaner, richer, has more people in it, doesn't stress the environment nearly as much as the current growth engines that we've got. And they are obviously uh, dairy in particular, but um, all of the food production, uh, plus tourism, plus international education, if you look at at least the export sector. And all of those involve some sort of extraction, exploitation, and are ultimately creating liabilities for future generations, either in terms of climate emissions, we know from our agriculture sector. Uh, then there's the tourism issue. There's an awful lot of emissions involved flying people here and back, not to mention the potential damage to the environment. And the jobs created in those areas, uh, and remember international education is actually an adjunct to the two of those. It's mainly about bringing people to then work part-time on kiwifruit orchards and cafes and liquor stores, um, the, the, those models for growth, uh, if you wanted to use them to make New Zealand richer, rather than just keep our heads above water and focus on the real game, which is making tax-free gains on leveraged residential land values, that aside, if you wanted to actually grow the economy and grow wages, then the way to do it that is that has the lightest touch, that involves the least capital investment, that involves the least concrete and steel, is building a SaaS industry and encouraging the sorts of hockey stick growth that we know is coming. Because we're and, at, and we've seen it before, right? Yeah. And we're at a really interesting moment, and that's why I wanted to do this presentation now. Uh, talking about hockey sticks, there are an awful lot of hockey sticks around at the moment, some of which could be good for us, some of which could be bad. Now, the one hockey stick that could be bad is that we are going into a bipolar world where you have the West, Europe and the United States, and then you have the East, Russia and China. And we unfortunately, accidentally on purpose, are straddled between the two where our cultural and democratic leanings are to the West, but our trade leanings, reliance, dependence, is to the East, in particular China. And the risk is we're forced to choose sides or that there's some sort of um, disruption, which means that, you know, we're talking 30 to 40% of our export receipts coming from one country, we are not as reliant on China as we were reliant on Britain in the 40s, 50s and 60s, but it's not far off it. We're not as reliant on China as Australia is, for example. They have a high share of um, revenues coming from China, but we are reliant. And well, one they're, of, they're bigger than what, the, they're more than twice the size of, uh, of what we export to the next biggest market, right? Australia. That's right. Yeah. So one of the risks here is that if we wanted to grow our economy using the existing, existing, existing engines, we would be doubling down on our reliance on China. We'd also be doubling down 
on our reliance on two industries that are particularly exposed to uh, climate action by our other trading partners. The last thing we want to happen is we're excluded from China for political reasons and we're excluded from the West for climate reasons. And so doubling down on those growth engines is dangerous. If you were purely looking at it from a risk reduction point of view and you were thinking diversification is one way to reduce your risks, the last thing you do is double down on dairy and tourism and international education. Well, so There's only so much you can scale you know, these things anyway, isn't there? And, and that's got to be one of the exciting... Yeah, uh, unless you can find some super cows that <laughs> don't wee and um, uh, don't eat grass... Um, it's not going to happen. And the same with tourism. You know, how many more people can we pack into the Rootburn track before it's the Rootburn motorway? You know, it's, it's, it's not going to happen. But we know SAS has only just begun globally. You know, we're talking about uh, GDP upwards of $30 trillion in which a lot of the ways it will be produced by businesses of all sorts. It's going to be transformed over the next 10 to 20 years by people moving hardware into software and taking advantage of the increasing power and sophistication of AI. And the way that happens is that an entire new range of businesses and translators, if you like, of AI into a business process that a small, medium, large business in Europe, China, Europe, everywhere, not to mention New Zealand, is going to happen. It is going to be the fourth industrial revolution and it's going to create enormous numbers of new jobs and will kill quite a few jobs. And if we're not in it, we're going to miss out. It's a huge opportunity. And we have a, a, some particular sets of skills, as Liam Neeson might say, to try and take advantage of it. We are at a moment in time where there are two or three hockey sticks happening at once, and a couple of them we could jump on for good. And the AI and SAS hockey sticks are ones we could jump on, and they are light-touch hockey sticks that we could develop and build throughout the country and use existing infrastructure, not having to put a whole bunch more concrete and steel on the ground and, then, and as you do it, pumping a lot of emissions into the atmosphere at a time when we can't afford it. We need to do all this in the next 10 years. And so what I'm arguing is that the SaaS industry should take the lead, um, use whatever tools and arguments it can to go to government, the public, workers, everywhere in the country and say, we can be the engine room for a new, richer, nicer, cleaner Aotearoa. Help us to do that by, for example, you know, um, uh, making it easy to train people. Let's say, for example, you use the apprenticeship um, scheme that was used during COVID in which apprentices were able to um, do their schemes fees-free and the people who were sponsoring the uh, apprentices were paid to look after those people for 10 weeks and train them up. You have the likes of uh, uh, Mission Ready doing amazing work, but of course there are many others 
who desperately need to bring in whole groups of New Zealanders, some of whom are working in other industries and have all sorts of skills and will need to convert them, but also a whole bunch of people who may be not connected to the workforce or are working in low-paid jobs. We have an extraordinarily high number of people earning the minimum wage. We need people earning 100K plus, not 30 or 40K. And it can be done. Uh, People like Mission Ready, Take Two, have shown that you can bring in people from uh, backgrounds who previously haven't worked in software. And we need to. The story I told today was of my own past. I grew up on a dairy farm in a place called Galatea. It's in the Eastern Bay of Plenty. And right next to it is a little town called Murapara, which is a former uh, forestry service town that is now one of the poorest and most um, tough places in the country. For those who followed the former Prime Minister, she spent quite a bit of her childhood there with her father, who was the local cop. And it was included in her origin story about how she wanted to change New Zealand. Well, Murapara is even poorer and more desperate than it was uh, 10 or 20 years ago, and it's done badly in COVID. It had the lowest vaccination rates of anywhere and uh, is a really tough place. But it has fibre, and it has some pretty cheap housing, and wouldn't it be great to build some software clusters there? I bet there'd be a bunch of people who are mountain biking fans who would do the software in the morning or the afternoon and in between go on a a two-hour trail ride through the Kangaroo Forest. Uh, Meanwhile, they've got a big gold fibre connection which they can have, they can slack away to their heart's content. (laughs) So that's that's how we could do it. We could grow a software as a service uh, industry in a series of clusters up and down the country which means we don't have to build 15 new motorways in Auckland and we don't have to build a new hospital every year in Auckland, and we don't have to pollute the uh, uh, Hauraki Gulf with whatever runs off those new motorways. And instead, we use the hospitals and the schools in places like uh, Te Kauri or uh, Timaru or uh, or the west coast of, of the South Island. And we do it in a way that allows us to grow our population. And here's the kicker. I don't think people are in this country realise how much work we have to do to deal with population growth, not just the stuff we've had, but the stuff we're going to have, and be really honest and clear about what it is we want to achieve. So, just a bit of history. Between 2003 and 2020, New Zealand's population grew on average by 1.5% per year. That is amongst the fastest population growth rates in the developed world. We did it through migration. But it's migration of temporary workers. We have the highest proportion of temporary workers as a share of our workforce in the developed world. We are the Dubai of the South Pacific. That is our business model. It is a churn business model. We pull in temporary workers from overseas and we export some of our brightest people to the rest of the world. We have a much higher outward immigration rate of uh, people born in this country than than everywhere else. Some people say, oh, well, everyone's going to go on an OE and it's the same in Australia and UK. It's not. Our rate of people leaving and never coming back, the diaspora, is the second highest in the world after Portugal. Um, We're actually higher now than the Irish. 
<laughs> that's partly because the Irish have supercharged their economy with tech and um, pharmaceuticals. Uh, you know, they're selling pharmaceuticals, they're not taking them. Um, so we're in a position where we're an exporter of our own people, which, you know, we're not going to put up a big gate at the, at the border and say you can't leave, but we have to find ways to in, encourage them to stay and to want to be here and to grow and to have families. At the moment, they can't afford to uh, um, grow their families in their own homes in the way that they want to because they're too expensive, and they don't see a future here. I mean, why would you when our only business models are risky and uh, breach our understandings of what the climate needs and also our understandings of how the, the world of geopolitics is changing? So what do we do? Well, we take advantage of the fourth industrial revolution that's coming our way via AI and SAS. We do it in the regions and we do it in a light touch way that doesn't cost too much. So... Uh, for example, um, you know, one of the risks is that in trying to shift your economy, you have to borrow an awful lot of money and pump it into concrete and steel somewhere. Now, it might be a factory, it might be a motorway, but that's how you, you do it. That's how Rob, Rob Muldoon did it. And frankly, that's how we tried to do it over the last decade or two, although we just didn't build the motorways. We just pulled people in <laughs> and then hoped that they'd fit. Well, we need to do it in a different way. And I'm saying SAS could be the supercharger for our economy. Uh, it is light touch. It is jumping onto a hockey stick that is taking off right now around the world. And finally, we actually have one advantage that maybe some others don't have around the world. And that is our ultra-fast broadband network which, um, again, through an accident of history, you could argue, and an inspired uh, piece of public investment and in infrastructure, has given us a leg up over some of our rivals. Um, go to regional Australia and ask them about <laughs> NBN and watch, watch the, watch the uh, expletives fly, because it doesn't work for them. But you go not, to Dun not, not just in regional Australia. No, no, no that's right. <laughs> so you go to Dunedin, you go to Whanganui, you go to uh, Whangarei, uh, there is fibre and there are plenty of empty buildings and there is good fishing in some of these places <laughs> if that's what you want to do. So we should use that as a, uh, an on-ramp onto this hockey stick mm -hmm. and we should do it in the regions. We shouldn't just say, right, we want everyone to live in Wynyard Quarter. <laughs> that's not going to work. And not everyone wants to live in Wynyard Quarter or can afford to. So... Uh, I'm arguing we should uh, um, see SAS as a supercharger for our economy and our society to make it richer, cleaner, have a lighter touch and make sure the planet doesn't cook and we don't kill our waterways and destroy the air. Because remember, over the next 50 to 100 years, we're going to be a climate refuge. There are 100 million people in our part of the world, in the hemisphere that includes China and India and Indonesia and Southeast Asia and the Philippines. It's going to be too hot to live there comfortably for a lot of people. Now, obviously, that's billions. We're not going to say, hey, you can all come here. And we couldn't. And they might not be able to. 
But there are about 100 million people who are in that situation over the next few decades who are rich enough to be able to not just pay for plane flights, but pay for education for their kids and invest some of their own money in businesses in Australia or New Zealand. Look at the map of the world. There's only two places in the world in that hemisphere where those people around the middle and in that those regions can go. They probably can't go north because that's Russia and China and Mongolia. They probably can't go to Europe because there's going to be a really big wall there saying you can't come in. Africa, well, they've got their own issues. Latin America, they'll be dealing with a whole bunch of people coming down from Central America. North America, well, good luck good luck with that because there's going to be a whole bunch of people from Central America who have gone up to... So where are people from China and India, the Philippines and Indonesia? Remember, Indonesia is hundreds of millions. You know, add on the Philippines, which, by the way, we're starting to understand and we welcome people in and that's been a, a real source of um, great people for us. Uh, wh why can't we um, say, yep, 100 million are going to come. We'd quite like a few of them to come here. We welcome you in. You know, bring a bunch of money, bring some great people. They're probably already educated, and it wouldn't surprise me if a few of them are software engineers to start with. But they'll come, and they'll love the place, and they'll invest in it, and we'll welcome them. And we're not giving them a temporary work visa. We're giving them a proper work visa. And at the same time, we use um, the tools and the skills learned by the likes of Mission Ready and Take Two to really uh, uh, re-educate and upskill a whole bunch of people who would not normally be in that those industries and in not normal places, you know, yep. Gisborne, um, Tikawiti, uh, places like that where uh, you could do some amazing things. Tikawiti has an awful lot of empty buildings and they're not all leaky or, or quaky. Um, pump them full of young people buying uh, coffee and jumping on a mountain bike uh, or jumping on some skis and that's a fun place to live and you could afford it and the yeah. schools and hospitals are all there. So um, we've got to do that because 100 million people come and if we continue to grow a population at one and a half... They're not all coming to New Zealand, right? No, no. Um, we couldn't handle that. But um, what I'm saying is that we should expect and we should want significant growth in our population. This is a discussion no one wants to have Politicians hide under a table when you talk about it. But it's just a fact of life. They're going to come. We should welcome people in and plan for it and think about it because if we continue to grow our population at the 1.5% we've done over the last 17 years and we continue that for the next 50 or 60 years, we will have, wait for it, 16 million people in this country. Now it can't. Oh, when when would we hit that number? Twenty one hundred. Twenty one hundred. And we are building motorways and schools and hospitals, and roads and rail lines and houses that will be really there in twenty one hundred. They should be unless we've failed to build them properly, and we're going to need them there in twenty one hundred. So we need to build all this stuff. We need to put our people, spread them throughout the island. Apart from anything else, some parts of uh, Aotearoa are not going to be safe to live in as the climate warms so you know uh, there are places um, the desert road <laughs> is going to be a nice cool place Waiuru has a lot of cheap housing there you go Tikawiti you know the so, Ratahi has some of the some, some of the best um, and most affordable housing in the country at the moment so if we're going to do this 16 million people have to be spread throughout the country we should use that fiber cable which seems to be able to pump more and more down through it every every minute and uh, 
not only should we embrace it, but we should plan for it and and have a positive view of this future, not retreat from it, not shrink from it, not try to hide from it or try to stop it from happening. This is a tide that is, is coming, whether we like it or not. AI, SAS, climate change, geopolitics. And this is the way we can use the tools we have and the place we have to make ourselves better. Now, in order to do that, what do you see, just in you know, a quick sort of sum up of the knobs and buttons you feel that need to be pushed from a, from a government perspective? Uh, because if, if they do the right things to support this and we as the population uh, get on board, then you know, these things are possible. What, 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 do you, what do you think? Yeah, no, I've just got the vision. I don't know how to do it. <laughs> I get a few ideas, but, you know, these are just the start. And um, one thing I'm keen to say is that you know, we shouldn't be trying to uh, ask for or press for, uh, you know, some massive shift in our tax structure or some, some way in which a whole bunch of people have to give up something. That Politically, realistically, you know, for example, we're not going to have a capital gains tax. I actually don't think we should have a capital gains tax. I want businesses to build amazingly valuable intellectual property and keep the benefits. Um, and I'd, lo- I'd love to tax pe- wealth in another way, particularly land wealth. But just put that aside. It's politically difficult. There are some things that government can do, though. The example I gave earlier of um, uh, the... Um, apprenticeship schemes, the retraining uh, are there. They worked. Mm. You could argue it's the most successful policy the current Prime Minister has ever introduced. He probably would. The um, apprenticeship boost scheme during COVID was a spectacular success. Cost a bit, and unfortunately it's just been wound back slightly, but that's exactly the sort of thing we should be investing in. Next, check to make sure the UFB network is out there and properly. I mean, it's just about there, I think. Um, and, and then go to every single mayor of every single town in the country and go, hey, would you like a 1,000 people being paid 100K plus living in your town, buying your houses, putting their kids in the school, using the hospital and um, paying to rent the mountain bikes every weekend? Would you like that? Oh, you do. And we're not expecting you to, you know, bowl half the town or put up a nasty factory outside or uh, pave over your your um, your fields. Um, just make sure the empty buildings get consented to be converted into, you know, warehouse space, software as a service hubs. Make sure that um, the people who want housing can get it. Make sure that. The schools are set up for it and there's some great parks and all of that. Then um, you talk about migration policy and also more broadly training policy and ensuring that those people and Murapara and uh, Tikawiri have access to, you know, the, the uh, mission readies or whatever it is. And some so, sort of onboarding into the, into the technology, into the software yeah, uh, yeah. sector, making that easier. Yeah, and then saying, go for it. What, what do you need? Mm-hmm. Now, I don't know exactly what they need. I'll be doing some work over the months and years to come to work out what are the particular policies that might turn the dial to really make the, um, the boat go faster, as they say. Uh, and I'm sure there's lots of things. You know, um, maybe it's 
big honking data centers in various places. Maybe it's turning off uh, Rio Tinto's uh, smelter and putting a big data center there. I don't know. There are lots of ways you can do this for not much money, but it does involve making a choice to say, strategically, we think this industry, which, by the way, is already earning more than $2 billion a year in export revenues, it already employs over 13,000 people. Got to remember, there's only 9,000 dairy farmers. You know, we put all our eggs in the dairy basket. It's got 9,000 dairy farmers and probably the same number of workers or a bit more on top of that. Mm-hmm. Um, why not go for 100,000, 200,000 SaaS people all earning and paying PAY and GST to get your budget back into surplus and not have to build, you know, 50 motorways to do it, you know, why don't you invest that money and take that strategic choice in a way that means it can be done and also you're doing it with the most enormous tailwind. Mm-hmm. You know, AI and SaaS are the tailwinds of our lifetime and we should go for gold. Yeah, really interesting perspectives there. Um, thank you very much, Bernard Hickey. Cheers. Well, it's exciting to be with Graham Grant, who's the chief executive at uh, Sequent. Now, Graham shared a, a really insightful and inspiring uh, session at Southern SAS. Uh, so it's great to have the opportunity to uh, to hear directly from uh, Graham and to uh, to boil down uh, you know some of those insights for New Zealand Tech Podcast uh, listeners. Um, Graham, welcome along. Thanks for uh, joining us. Well, thanks, Paul. It's great to be back here again. I think second time. Um, I've been on your podcast. It was a very enjoyable discussion last time, so I look forward to it again. Likewise, thank you. Well, I guess you you went through sort of a, a range of aspects of the, the sequence story, but maybe you can give a little bit of the background for those who don't know much about the incredible sequence story. Yeah, so the talk for those that um, didn't see it, it's available on, on Kiwi Sash. You can get it from the um, resource center from KiwiSash, you're welcome to go and take a look. It's free to join and, and, and anyone in the tech industry should be joining up onto KiwiSash and being part of that conversation and, and learning from all those that great material. Um, what I aimed to set out and do was tell the sequence story about where it all came from and then how we got to where we got to. A little bit about where we're going, but not so much around that. It was a lessons learned so that those lessons could be picked up and adopted by others if it was indeed useful. And it is an interesting story. The valuation, I think, is something that caught a lot of people's attention two years ago because we were still, and still are, relatively unknown to that point in time. So it was a, in Kiwi dollar terms, a $1.4 billion transaction, which put us in sort of number three in the Pantheon. Trade me, um, Weta were above us, and we were sitting at that point at least at number three. And so, so where did all that come from? as a South Island Christchurch, you know, founded business, that seems rather strange. And um, I showed how we'd come from one employee in 2003 to that point and then lifted out sort of seven lessons on the way through. So that was the, that was the story. It's been relatively fast getting to where we're going. And we're obviously a company that has a lot of runway ahead and much to achieve in sort of global terms. So Happy to recount some of that if that would if you'd find it useful, or indeed where we came from, and, and indeed some of the lessons on the way through. Maybe we can drill into you know some of those seven areas that you spoke about at Southern SAS, and you know, mm. as you mentioned, for those that uh, that enjoy this and want to go a little bit deeper, um, then you know definitely go and catch Graham's session there on the uh, Kiwi SAS uh, website. 
and the, you know, there's a bunch of other content there as well. Yep. I think of the seven, there's probably five that are be of most interest to this audience and probably of those five, you maybe even three um, are the ones to sort of really press on and, and they go in the sequence order. So I might even pick on those three and let's see, see how we go. The first one was all about moving from one industry to another industry. And if you look at the origins of where technology comes from, it often has many, many parents. Sometimes that is academic in nature, it spins out of university. Sometimes it's a prior technology company where the founder got an even better idea and started again. And sometimes it's someone just stumbling across a fundamental market problem that they realize has got sufficient market space that warrants a technology response. And so they build something. Um, our story was a little bit of a combination of those, but we're a science-based business. And so we come from science origins. So the, we, we are actually a spin out of another technology business that still exists today in Canterbury. Today, they're a successful business in the medical sciences field, but way back in the day, before we launched, um, they had applied, they had a, a set of technology they had developed and they had tried to apply that technology in a number of areas. And I explained in my talk and people could look at how that had been used in the meat industry, um, in the medical industry and cranial um, surgery and burn victims to use for, for military veterans who had lost limbs. It had been used by NASA, it had been used in movie making. And all of these amazing sort of different places, and none of those landed as a you know highly revenue generative um, solution, even though it was solving a problem. They ended up solving a different, very specific problem, like a medical science. The point about our business was that we were one of those many things that popped up out of nowhere. It's the idea that you've got a technology that's maturing in some space, and someone realizes that technology can be moved sideways into a completely different use case, but it's the general problem is the same, even though it evolves differently. So in the case of this science had been built in unstructured data in medical science, well, one of the features of geology is you have a whole lot of unstructured, um, disconnected data in 3D space. In this case, it's drill holes underground looking for mineral deposits, and you need a better way of taking that data and expressing what might be there. And so the use of this set of mathematical techniques in mining actually proved to be very successful. So in, a, in many ways, it was a deliberate approach by another industry to us to say, could you attempt to use your technology in our space? We did, it worked, and then it became productized. So the point I was trying to make was that sometimes when a new technology, not an, not, not an idea, moved somewhere else but the origin of a new technology sometimes the space in which it's built is not actually the space that's going to be most successful it might start somewhere but actually be way more successful somewhere else and in our case that's true the geology division of the business grew way faster and way larger than the medical business ever did and so that was an interesting insight and i think one that technology founders should think about i had a new zealand an unnamed Canterbury new emerging tech business approached me only a month ago by the founder who is solving a particular problem on one vertical industry and it will be a game changer if they can pull that off and they had been approached by the mining industry to do exactly the same thing in a different space and it will be a game changer. Um, I know they'll be able to move way faster in mining than they will in their intended market which is highly regulated and so there you go. It's another example again of 
something being built in a highly regulated space like medical or in this particular case aerospace and it will jump into mining and have a massive impact so it's a, an important lesson and one that founders should be aware of which also means they should be aware of someone jumping into their space yeah that's really really helpful and I guess the question is, how do you figure that out? Because you're not always going to have somebody knocking on knocking on your door that can see those cases. So, you know, do you do you have to keep a good uh, lookout? Uh, you know, can you even see those things? Because sometimes it's going to take another party that can join up dots that, that you might never be able to do yourself, right? Correct. And so there are some things you can do. I didn't talk about this, but you can try where you can. As a small business, this is hard, if not impossible, but to be horizon scanning. Um, you can look for adjacencies to your business. So what are things that are not exactly like you, but sufficiently like you that they're worth exploring? That is a consideration. And the other thing is to look way, way over the hill to far, far away using, a, a Canter- again, a Canterbury-based economist slash future thinker. We're doing a lot of work in the sort of what we call a crow's nest, which is getting right up high and looking out far over the horizon to where things aren't, can't even be seen yet and look at the collision of um, you know, unrelated but emergent technologies and how those things could blow back into the industries that we're in. Because that's both a risk, but it's also a huge opportunity if you can exploit them and see them coming. Yeah, um, and, but and, as a small and it's firm, so important that we, are, that we are looking out, isn't it, like, like that? But uh, there's, only, there's only so much of that you can do as a, as a small organisation. As a small organisation, there's only so much you can do. But what you can do is you can look for weak signals and have your eyes open. And not have your not have your vision down on your feet, but try and be looking up, looking ahead as much as is possible. The next one was interesting because it was, I think, a story worthy of a case study at some point that no one's ever written up. But it was some um, for those that don't know Jeffrey Moore, you should um, if you're in the tech business. And Jeffrey Moore in '91 wrote this book called Crossing the Chasm. And many on the call will know the classic you know adoption curve. You've got laggards out at one end, and you've got your very early adopters another, and a series of groups in between it looks like something like a bell curve and that that idea of population business population theory has been around forever um, more proposed the idea that between your very very early adopters your, your folks who are first to jump on technology and the next lot there's actually a really big gap and there's that gap's very very important because you know the people that queued up for the palm pilot first um, they didn't want everyone else to have one because they were cool and they were the first on. And often it's the second product that wins. You know, Apple's a fantastic fast follower. They're not really an innovator in the in the scheme of things. And so sometimes first doesn't succeed, right? So the question is, why don't things go mainstream? And if you read more, he'll suggest there's a series of reasons why they don't. Um, but one of them is that the the very nature and behavior of that cohort of the very early adopters are simply not representative of the behavior of the rest of the population. You know, the the person that loves a piece of technology because they can code and script versus someone who just wants to hit a button and make it go. They're just so different. So the question would be as a startup, are you, do you have early signals coming out of the market, which are hugely enthusiastic from early adopters and they're loving your product and they've got forums and they're getting together on Friday nights and talking about your product and they think it's amazing. Um, And that's precisely the reason you'll fail because you're getting signals from this early group, which are not representative of the mainstream. So what happened with us is we built an early product in 2003. It launched, it 
trundled along for about six years and the growth curve looks, it inclines, but it's not really steep. Then it hit a J curve probably in 2019 and it just went vertical. And so you would look at that J curve and say, we've done it, you know, we've kind of made it. But what I revealed to the audience was that some very foresight driven people realized that we had built a product that was incredibly successful with this very, very early adopter group. And in fact, if we stayed with it, we'd die. So they killed the product um, and they rebuilt it and they rebuilt using all the learnings from that product. They rebuilt one that would be taken on by the early majority and everybody else. And that product completely exploded. And now that's the thing that has pump primed our entire business. But if you looked at the numbers on the day, you would have been foolhardy to kill that product, but they killed it. And that's an incredibly brave decision because they made that decision with no competitive pressure at all. No one had even, none of our, we were first to market of anyone in the world with our type of technology and no one had even seen it coming. And when, the, when they saw it, they still thought it was a joke um, and none of them tried to replicate it. So we still killed it without any, any replication. So that was a very brave decision, but it was the one that made the company. So that prompted a lot of response from folks in the audience, because I think they were wondering, have we built a precursor to a Chasm product? And so having been through that now in hindsight for the, for the business, what would you say to others that are in a similar position or have got that ahead of them? How do you recognize that's the case and, and make those big calls, because that's a, an absolutely huge call to kill off what appears to be the cash cow, what appears to be the business, and to you know have to spend all that time and investment uh, you know building the thing that's, that's effectively going to di- disrupt it. And the two things that made it worse for us was that it was the only product. So it was the only thing paying the rent in the staff. If we were wrong, the company was dead, and the customers that saw the new one coming hated it. Oh no, so, that's insane. So everything was everything was stacked against it. Um, there's literally none of that product left anymore. So the question for the founder is you're you are you aren't you seeing that problem ahead of you? I think you, you need to understand very clearly the problem you're trying to solve with the technology you've got. And once you've understood the problem you're trying to solve, how is it being solved by your technology? And is the way you're solving that technology set up in a way that's sufficiently able to go mainstream? I think that's the question. So for example, hardware, we're not a hardware company, but it's often the case that you'll see the first version of a hardware something get produced. It starts to go towards some form of scale and they realize the way they've designed it is not scalable. Can't be maintained, um, can't be retrofitted, very difficult to fix, You know, software hard to upload, componentry, whatever. So what do they do? They go back to the drawing board and start again and design it to be scaled but they couldn't have done that because they needed to get the first one out first. So that's very obvious with hardware. Software, it's a little harder. So you need to look very carefully at who your constituent audience is. Don't just listen to those people who are the raving fans for what you've built. Listen to the people who aren't. Like, what is it that they can't do with it that they'd like to do? And is that a fundamental signal about whether you're building something that can go to the mainstream. So think about the personas of the large group you're going after. What's the big white space? And what would be the precondition for your software to succeed with that group? Um, remember those early, early people that come on board, they'll put up with all sorts of frustrations, quirks, 
you know, need to do some strange thing, bend a bit of wire to make it work. The mainstream won't do that. So ease of use, for example, would be a fantastic test because if it's not, it won't sell. Yeah. So you should think really hard about it. That's great. That's a that's a really good yep. breakdown. Now we've probably got time for the third one. Is that uh, valuations or what's the, what it, what we've got to? No, actually, no. I'll just touch on the sort of evolution revolution question. I mean, valuations a thing. It's a very very important issue for a founder. They want to know what is my company worth, or rather, what will it be worth, and and how can they give themselves some degree of certainty about that? And and there's a lot you can do to predict that. And moreover, there's a lot you can do to put yourself in a good position to maximize value. I mean, you would not put your house on sale with the beds unmade and the house unpainted. You know, you'd put it in good shape. So the question is, is your business in good shape? So there'd be an example of, of you know, some things you can do to shore up your position and, and maximize the opportunity for sale. But that's a whole big subject in its own right. I think the bigger one, which I see so many companies run into, and we get asked this question all the time, which is how do you deal with growth? And um, I highlighted a very, very old text, um, 1971, um, Harvard Business Review, a guy called Larry Greiner. He had studied a whole lot of companies that grow and what are the issues they face in growth. And he built, uh, he extracted from that, those insights, four main phases of company growth. And as you go from one phase to the next, it's like a cause of a revolution. The period in between is relatively benign. It's a progressive evolution. And then bang, you hit a revolution. And the revolution is something that can kill you or make you, but you have to go through it. So I use the analog of becoming a teenager to an adult or a toddler to a, a child. You have to go through the phase, but what is it you'll deal with? And we all know going through teenage years is hard. Well, companies go through teenage years. How do they mature? How do they grow? How do they build professional management teams? How do they exit the founder board and bring on a professional board? How do they bring on new equity? How do they delegate and create systems and controls? How do they internationalize? There are all these things, phases of the journey you go through, and you have to know they're coming and prepare for them. You can't just sort of run into them and go, oops, and then deal with it on the fly. You can when you're small, you can't as you're growing and you're scaling. So we've been through multiple evolution and revolutions as we've gone along. We fundamentally changed our model every three years and it gets it changes at least every 18 months. And it's just the way of things. And the faster you grow, the quicker you'll hit those issues. Most Kiwi companies talk about you know internationalization. That's the thing that's kind of on their mind. How do I go offshore? How do I scale? But I would ask different questions like how professional is your management team? What's the level of skill you've got? You know, is your HR team used to dealing with a business of 10 people that you're heading to a thousand? Do they really know how to run talent management and compensation models? And do they know how to think about retention and culture and all those sorts of things that you need? And you'll get there very, very quickly. So there's so many things about evolution or revolution. And I think what's helpful, the paper doesn't give you answers, but it poses some questions you should think about. Um, and help your management team think ahead, think forward, and and be in pre- have a preparatory mindset whilst you're running your business here and now. That's great. That's uh, that's really helpful. Now you did you did share uh, some interesting, mind blowing uh, numbers on the valuation side uh, during your talk in terms of you know, a potent, the potential the 2016 um, opportunity or the approach to mm. sell, sell the business. Um, mm. Can you just walk us through a little, a little bit about um, 
you know that that journey through to through to um, sure the the acquisition um, in twenty twenty one. Well, you could think about it in ten-year blocks. So when we founded and started, we spun out effectively around two thousand three. You could say we were worth nothing, or you'd had to pay someone to take it away because it was a net loss, right? There was no revenue, and it was an experiment. Mm. And that comes that loads all sorts of risk back on the sending company. So you know, let, let's respect the fact that the founders of the original company took a huge risk in, in getting this going because it was their cash on the table. There was no debt. There was no extra equity. There was no Series A. It was just bootstrapped, literally. Ten years later, um, it was offered for sale uh, to a competitor for around $10 million New Zealand, and that offer was rejected um, by a competitor who is still a competitor today. Ten years, 11 years later, 2021, it was sold for $1.4 billion New Zealand dollars. So when you think about that as a value increment and do the compound annual growth rate on that, it's a pretty extraordinary growth. Now, 2021, as those in the tech industry would know, that was kind of a peak year. The market tripped over itself around November, December of 21, and then went on its free fall through early 22. You might recall, was it, you know, Facebook dumped four or 500 million dollars in valuation, yeah. billion dollars, I should say. Um, so there was a timing element to that for sure, because we were on the sort of market rise. But equally, what we saw was huge changes in, in transaction multiples. Mm-hmm. So back in the day, in the mid sort of, you know, 2013s, 14s, 15s, you might have thought about yourself as being 3x revenue as a possible sales value on a good, strong recurring revenue software business that was pushing up well beyond 10 to 15 by the time our business was sold. Now those multiples have all come back down again. You know, we're back into a a little bit normal um, with a greater focus on profit generation and so forth. But that just shows you the scale of what's possible. When you're pulling two levers, you're pulling the volume lever, which is revenue and how big are you? And you're pulling the the RevX metric, which is for every dollar of revenue, how much is the buyer going to pay? There's an element of that, which is market. Of course, is the market hot and do people want to pay for your technology there and now? But also, is your business desirable? And there's a whole lot that business owners can do to make their business more desirable and therefore crank up the Rebex, irrespective of the stage of the market. And they should be very minded about that. So it's not just grow a big business, it's grow a good, a good big business, a valuable big business. Absolutely. Was there anything else that you wanted to add to, to cap things off? I don't think so, Paul. We could keep going, but look, hopefully that was gave a little brief summary and, you know, welcome folks clicking in on that one and have a listen. And, and if anyone's curious or wants to know more, always happy to reach out and, you know, give us a call. More than happy to help where we can other Kiwi businesses. Well, thank you so much for joining the, the podcast, uh, Graham Grant. Thanks, Paul. And, uh, yeah, great to get some of those insights from Sequence Story. Well, thanks everyone for joining us on this episode of the New Zealand Tech Podcast. Of course, a special thanks to our show partners, 1NZ, Spark NZ, 2Degrees, HP and Gorilla Technology. I'm sure you would have taken a lot away uh, from this episode. What I can recommend, if you want more content to do with what's happening in the world of software as a service, and the content that was recorded at Southern SAS, then definitely head across to the Kiwi SAS website at kiwisas.com and you can sign up to get access uh, to their portal 
and all of the, the talks from the event on the 30th of March 2023. All right, Paul Spain signing out. We'll catch you on the next episode of the New Zealand Tech Podcast. Thanks for joining us. The New Zealand Tech Podcast, brought to you by Gorilla Technology, proactive and strategic IT.